Tony Blair, and this is my first name drop, once said to me, but I'm sure he said to other people as well, that he took a lot of note of Bill Clinton's motto, never stop arguing. And what he meant by that is he didn't mean be a pain, etc., and kind of, you know, every time you have a dinner party, make sure that you're the only voice that gets heard and so on. What he meant was never give up on telling people what you think is happening. By all means, change your argument, but as you discover new things, but never stop. And I think this is a kind of generally a, a good rule for life. There's a big temptation to kind of give up on it and so on. I have had communications with people who have said, not that many, but nevertheless some, and maybe they represent more. I was a bit of a conspiracy theorist. I read your book, and actually I was more persuaded by what you said than by them, and I've changed my mind on it. Friends, Happy New Year to you all and welcome to the first load of BS 2022, the Behavioural Science Podcast with me, Daniel Ross. In my 2021 My Year of Total BS essay, which by the way you can find at aloadofbs.substack.com, I shared with you some personal ruminations on BS and this publication's motivation. Put simply, the raison d'etre of a load of BS is to try to explain why we do the things we do. I also invited you to participate even more vigorously in this community. I'm really excited that since last week I've lined up three really sharp minds to guest contribute to my Monday BS newsletter. That's Phil Agnew, Tom Morgan and Jonathan Luff. You're all welcome to submit ideas. Email me directly at danielsjross at gmail.com or send me a tweet at danielsjross if that interests you. Furthermore, I'd like to include your questions in my podcasts. My next two conversations are with Melissa Hoganboom and Dave Trott. Details are in the show notes, but Melissa is a science journalist for the BBC who wrote The Motherhood Complex, a rigorously researched expose of the mountainous challenges that women endure in motherhood, from fighting a system which, despite progress and better intention, is still greatly skewed in favour of men's needs, to the creation of a new identity in the face of physical and psychological change. Dave is an advertising legend, having founded three extraordinarily successful agencies, written five books on creative thinking, and been voted most creative agency in the world by Advertising Age. If you have a question or thought you'd like me to share with Dave or Melissa, please email me directly again at danielsjross at gmail.com, send me a tweet at danielsjross, or feel free to reach out via my substack, and I'll credit you in the show. So, talking of explaining why we do the things we do, this week's podcast to kick off the new year is with journalist, author, historian and broadcaster David Aronovich. While David's frames of reference are dazzlingly broad, today we focus on conspiracy theories, the subject of one of David's books, Voodoo Histories. As an aside, I'm going to write something in the coming weeks in Monday BS on today's sense-making crisis in the age of COVID. You may have caught sight of Joe Rogan's recent interview with Robert Malone, newly barred from Twitter for his repeated violations of their COVID-19 misinformation policy. Google the term mass formation psychosis, but that's for another day. Today with David, we kick off exploring why we choose to believe what we believe, what's so attractive about conspiracy theories. Jews in conspiracy theories, and the elitist moral high ground that believers typically take. 
Before we start, I must of course mention my sponsor of a load of BS, and that's Crankwheel. From Iceland originally, these guys are as cool as ice and are sweeping up new clients like crazy as more of us get Zoom fatigue and want simpler ways to engage virtually with colleagues. Some people have the ability to paint a picture in a few words. Crankwheel is for the rest of us. Crankwheel gives you zero friction screen sharing during voice calls. You send a link to the person on the other end of the line and they enter that seamlessly on any browser, any device. No logins, no registering, no what's my bloody password. Crankwheel is particularly great for those first sales calls or for onboarding new customers. It's really for any business looking to engage with customers more efficiently. I'm personally delighted to be supporting the guys. A load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now on with the show. David, welcome to A Load of BS. It's my great pleasure to have you here. It's my great pleasure to be on a programme with such a provocative and engaging title. Yes, there's endless childish mileage there, uh, which I have yet to get fed up with. So uh, thank you for indulging me on that. What's both fascinating and challenging about conversation with you, David, is that as a journalist, author and broadcaster, your frames of reference and interest seem to me so broad because you've written about so many things from politics to current affairs to history to TV reviews and you commentate dare I say, with such a plum on so many questions that I find you're rather hard to pin down, which I hope is a compliment. But is that a fair start? Or maybe you can describe yourself more eloquently than I've attempted to. You mean I spread myself too thin over too many areas and give myself a kind of air of spurious expertise over all of them? (laughs) Or do you think I was being a little euphemistic? No, 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 no. no. I mean, it is certainly true that my interests don't fit in a particular kind of subject box. But that doesn't mean that they're not rather particular. In other words, I don't specialise a bit. It's just that, for example, I'm not sufficiently interested in the day-to-day business of who's up and who's down in politics to be, let's say, a political specialist. So I don't regard myself as a political commentator in that sense at all. And my points of interest, I'm a historian by training, so there's a lot of that in there. I've become very engaged with scientific developments and tried very hard to try and understand, particularly scientific medical developments in the last few years, what those mean. I very much enjoy being involved in discussions about culture from pictures to theatre and so on. I was fortunate in that I became pretty well read when I was younger and that stood me in good stead. So I have a kind of, you know, I have something of a cultural hinterland. But Daniel, there are vast areas of the world that I know nothing about that I really should know far more about or, or of policy and so on. And I see myself as a kind of map of weakness rather than a map of knowledge. We're all guilty of gaps in our knowledge and that's really the thrill and motivation to keep reading and and learning more. To which point the subject of behavioural science, like you David, is also very broad ranging and at heart it's examining how we think, feel and act or perhaps more precisely it investigates how what we feel influences how we act and I'd like to take that thought and apply it to a subject that you understand very well because you've written a book about it although as we'll come to find out I suspect writing and understanding can have weak correlation but that subject (laughs) is conspiracy theories and by association truth and what that notion means to us. And to set the scene, uh, your book is called Voodoo Histories, How Conspiracy Theory Has Shaped Modern History. I was conscious, I, I sound as if I'm about to give it the big launch. I mean, you wrote it 10 years ago, but it its messages are timeless, I think. And indeed, because many infamous theories, I suppose, are still in circulation. And I think in terms of behavioral science, there's much for us to learn here about belief systems, gullibility, confirmation bias, groupthink, and frankly, plenty 
plenty of other BS buzzwords. So let's get into this gently then. What is a conspiracy theory and what interests you about them? I think the first thing to make a link between your entire program and how I got into thinking about conspiracy theories is that this comes from a real desire to understand why people believe what they do believe and how they deal with contradictions in what you might call the real world to that belief. So the genesis of doing a book about conspiracy theories actually lay originally in the area of frauds and fakes and hoaxes, which then get you into the question of sometimes you've got a dog there who's going gangbusters. I'm, qu- I'm, quite, I'm quite aware. It'll be a background pleasure for, for our listeners, but uh, <laughs> okay. I, 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 okay. I've got to deal that, with that. That's, that's your way of saying there's nothing I can do about the dog. Please <laughs> carry on. <laughs> okay. Something like that for that. That's absolutely fine. So, I, I mean, I remember very well reading a book about a fraudster, essentially, who was a Mormon, who became a murderer as well as he tried to cover up his frauds. But the fact was that the Mormon church deeply wanted him to supply them with artefacts with which gave them a history because, of course, they were very recent. And in order to believe in the Mormon religion, you had to believe that the angel of God appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him some golden plates, which only he could read from. He described them through scrying glasses for somebody else who never got to see them and so on. So you can see that a church like that, which actually expanded very rapidly, needed some history. And this guy provided them with some history. The only problem was he was faking it all. So this was one of a number of kind of points of interest in the question. And of course, my own parents, have been lifelong communists. My father worked for the Communist Party. And as part of that, they allowed themselves really and been complicit in their own fooling in order to be able to suggest themselves that the Soviet Union wasn't as bad a place under Stalin, as people said, that Stalin was really kind of great, wonderful man. All this talk of show trials actually wasn't fair that all these people at the show trials were guilty. I mean, that's not what they believed at the end of their lives, but it's certainly what they believed for part of their lives. So these things kind of came together for me in wanting to understand why we choose to believe what we choose to believe, why we end up with the set of beliefs that we do, and why some of those beliefs are so at variance with what you might call tested reality, you know, what it is that if you kind of looked closely at something and as detached as you could, that you would say was actually the truth of a particular situation. And so we'll come on a bit more to that in a moment, I think. So there you have the questions. And one of those areas is conspiracy theory. Now, what is a conspiracy theory, which takes us back to your original question? Well, clearly there are conspiracies. Two people plot secretly to have something happen they don't want to tell somebody else about. That's a conspiracy. By definition, that's a conspiracy. Conspire to breathe together is the origin of that. And there have been plenty of conspiracies throughout history, some of them grand, most of them kind of minor. A conspiracy theory is the decision or the inclination to believe a version of events, an explanation of events involving a conspiracy that is actually less plausible than alternative explanations. That's a conspiracy theory. In other words, to have a theory that a conspiracy is a conspiracy, when it's quite likely there's a conspiracy, is not a conspiracy theory. Is, is it fair to say that they are synonymous with propaganda? I mean, you just referenced, you know, much of the discourse, say, of post-World War One Europe and Russia could be defined both as propaganda and conspiracy theory. Is that fair? I, I don't know. I never thought about it in those terms before. And that's a very big question. I mean, where 
involves the notion that there is a secret plot and closely organized plot to have something happen. My understanding of the Cold War was, uh, see, I lived through a fair bit of it, was essentially that they were taking pokes at each other's systems entirely. And some of those pokes would be true and some of them would be untrue. But they didn't really involve, I mean, there were periods when they might have involved a notion of conspiracy when another explanation was more plausible. Let me give you two examples. One was the scale and size of the purported communist conspiracy in America as discovered, in quote marks, by Joe McCarthy and others. It's not that there wasn't a small degree of underlying reality to it. It's just that it was vastly overblown and applied to the wrong people and constructed a form of sophistication and depth which really didn't exist. And the other one, of course, in the Soviet Union itself, was the kind of idea that anybody who was dissentient in any kind of a way was a product of a very elaborate plot in order to try and damage and sabotage the Soviet Union. And one of the things that's always interested me is the extent to which somebody like Stalin and the people around him, particularly Stalin, believed that what he was alleging against all these so-called plotters was true, or to what extent it was merely a matter of convenience, or to what extent actually one blended with the other in such a way that even he couldn't tell which one it was, you know, so vast had the enterprise become. So that's a kind of long-winded way of saying, I, I don't know. No, it is fascinating. It reminds me of Tony Blair's view on sort of post-Iraq. You know, one's never quite sure whether in their heart of hearts, and this is not a conspiracy theory, of course, is that when you are a proponent of a particular point of view for any length of time, even if objective fact tells you otherwise, you're so invested in the belief that it becomes very difficult to change opinion. I, I would put that very differently. So, for example, the belief that Saddam Hussein was likely to have weapons of mass destruction was not, in my opinion, a conspiracy theory. Some people... I fully agree with you, yes. But I mean, but people have said that. So I remember when I first released Voodoo Histories, I was doing a session at the Hay on Why book event. And firstly, Jon Snow forgot he was supposed to be chairing it and turned up half an hour late. And then when he started chairing it, he started saying to me, but you fell for the Iraq conspiracy theory. And I'd say, well, actually, I didn't fall for anything if you look at what I wrote. But actually, it wasn't conspiracy theory, because if you looked at what the spooks had told the government in terms of the Joint Intelligence Committee's conclusions, you would be, as a politician, you would conclude that the likelihood was that Saddam Hussein did have weapons of mass destruction. The nightmare, as far as Tony Blair was concerned, was the idea that a rogue state would put some of these in the hands of people like Al-Qaeda, who were kind of relatively new people on the scene and people were very worried about. And for him, the worst possibility in the Iraq situation was that this would simply be allowed to continue. The best situation was that a world threat to Saddam sufficiently convincing, because everybody was involved, would get him to vacate his leadership of Iraq and then the place would be kind of opened up and properly inspected and so on. And as we know, none of that actually happened. But I know that because that's in the record and, and we interviewed him. So I don't accept, I know you don't either, but I don't accept the notion of a conspiracy theory. But if what you're saying is, at a certain point, the facts available were interrogated in such a way as to confirm the existing worries of the people who were making the decision, then that's obviously true. I'm uh, talking about escalation of commitment, I suppose, regardless of conspiracy. Oh, escalation, yeah, escalation of commitment. Well, we all bloody well do that. That is one of the kind of great universals. And that's one of the huge problems in actually dealing with conspiracy theorists in a funny kind of a way, because the argument goes that the more you tell them they're wrong, the more they invest in the theory. Unfortunately, the alternative doesn't work either, which is not to tell them that they're wrong. We might come back to the question of combating conspiracy theories. It makes me think they're like sort of children as well, really stubborn. The more you tell them one thing, the more they want to do well, or believe. You know, of course, and as we will talk about later, 
the truth almost certainly is that there are different levels of commitment to conspiracy theories amongst different people. Some of them enjoy them as kind of quasi-playful things. Some of them invest in them in a quasi-religious way. Some of them dabble in them for a bit and actually can be detached from them with the right kind of approach. So treating any significant group of people as if they are homogenous is usually a mistake, however tempting it is. Yeah. So look, we are perhaps nudging at the foundation of religion here since you mentioned it. Now, of course, when we're thinking about religion, we do play zero-sum games. In other words, even if we accept other belief systems, we probably still maintain if my God is true, therefore yours can't be. So are religious beliefs essentially conspiracy theories by another name? (laughs) I always love this bit of the discussion, really. I mean, a conspiracy theory in the sense that, yes, we suddenly impute to a quasi-magical superhuman force the capacity to do extraordinary things without the capacity actually scientifically to test whether that's the case broadly. That applies to the fundamental of religion, that there is a greater intelligence at work sitting above us and so on, who organises the world for good or for ill or for whatever you think your particular deity or deities is up to. And that does bear a relationship to the big conspiracy type conspiracy theories, which are usually based on the notion that there are a person or a group of people who, though human, have those sorts of capacities. So the classic example of, if you like, a kind of super dominant conspiracy theory would be the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the famous forgery from the beginning of the 20th century, which said essentially, back in the end of the 19th century, the top Jews of the world had got together and parceled out the jobs on how to control the whole of the world, all the newspapers, all the political parties, all the trade unions, etc. And the pornography, you know, just a cherry on the top of the cake, in order to bring out chaos, revolution and war so that eventually they could take over, although to what actual purpose they were doing all that never quite gets discussed. Well, you can argue that the, in a way, you construct out of that an anti-god out of these people, the Jews, who are able to do such remarkable things, as such sort of, you know, kind of powerful things that people are virtually powerless to do anything about it, unless, of course, you know, they kill all the Jews or get rid of all the Jews, which is why Norman Cohn described the Protocols of the Elder Zion as a warrant for genocide, because if you literally believe this stuff, then it's a hop, skip and a jump before you think, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, you're going to do this. But nevertheless, there is within kind of conspiracy theory quite often a desire to abolish the ideas of accident and contingency and replace them with the idea of everything is intentional. So under those circumstances, evolution, as we understand, it becomes kind of slightly impossible and you move towards creationism because you require that intention and you require to have that intention placed. And a lot of explanation for that is, as you know from behavioural science, is in the desire of human beings for explanatory narratives because we do find it very hard to accept the ideas of uncertainty and lack of sureness and so on. In the conspiracy theory world, this becomes a preference for a particular kind of creative narrative, creation narrative, over other possibilities and so on. But since you've asked about the relationship, that seems to me to kind of touch upon some aspects of that. And I wanted to pick up on the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is, I think, from memory, the opening conspiracy theory chapter of the book. Why do you think, and please correct me if if you think I'm wrong here, but why have the Jews been so historically associated with many theories? I mean, the protocols is the obvious example, but it seems to me, and perhaps it's my own sensitivity, but Jews are somewhere in the background more often than not. There is no conspiracy theory that I'm aware of in the modern world that somebody will not turn into a thing about Jews or hint that Jews are involved. That doesn't mean that all the people who believe in that conspiracy theory 
go down that road and so on, but sufficient number do. I mean, just think about the qualities of Jewish people. Firstly, they exist in many countries because of the diaspora. Second, they maintain contacts with each other, or they did, across those countries in a way that other people tended not to. And of course, you get other diasporas, Irish diasporas, and others that you can imagine. But this one is kind of more wider. Third, the religious dimension. These were the people who killed Jesus Christ, who refused to recognize Jesus Christ. So in that sense, they are kind of proto-heretics if you are a religious Christian. And that's how what's handed down from medieval times. So you could find in Lincoln Cathedral, for example, as late as, as 2005, six, a little a notice being handed out by the parish saying, and we look forward to the conversion of the Jews. And given the history of Lincoln and the medieval persecution of the Jews, that's kind of rather remarkable piece of insensitivity, if nothing else. But it kind of tells, so that's another thing. Then, of course, the Jews have their own secret language with their own secret writing. They have Hebrew, no one understands it, not very many people speak it unless they're biblical scholars, yet here they are practicing and their strange religion, which isn't my religion, in all these kind of various places. So you put all those things together, well, and clearly they have a loyalty to each other rather than to my community and to our communities, which makes them suspect and slightly kind of other. So what more natural, if you don't understand why things are happening, than to think that maybe these people are behind it and so on. And then the other thing which is noticed, which is, of course, the kind of notion that there's a proclivity of Jews to do certain things, some of which goes back into the history of how usury was not allowed for Christians, but was permitted to Jews and was one of the few things that was permitted to Jews. So this establishes a kind of connection between Jews and power and money, which plays on these other things. So it's a kind of combination of factors. And then what you do, of course, and what people do is factor out the things which are kind of contrary indicators. So take, for example, my grandparents who were Jews who came over from Lithuania in 1904. They were completely illiterate, totally poverty stricken, never had any money and were never in any way successful. But you don't hear about those. <laughs> so they just sort of kind of factored out in people's understanding of what Jews and Jewish people can be and have been throughout history. You know, the vast majority of Jews killed during the Second World War were poor. Of course they were. Absolutely. There's an, without digressing too much, but there's an interesting contradiction. David Badil references it in Jews Don't Count, and it's in particular to the Nazi portrayal, which is on the one hand, Jews are both gutter, but also pulling the levers of society. It's complicated. Yeah, which the Nazis got round by a kind of racial explanation. So we effectively, you're kind of the rats in a society. You're the kind of vermin, etc. Kind of clever and sly and dirty at the same time. You somehow manage to be the those things simultaneously. Let's talk about motivation for belief and the sort of psychology of conspiracy theories. Why are they so attractive? We talked about a bit about it in the, in the context of religion. Um, we want the narrative. We want the explanation. We don't like uncertainty and we don't like accident. If you somebody says they have a cold, then the automatic next question, which they will be asked or seek to answer is, where did I get it? What brought this cold on? And we demand to have some form of explanation for that and we will create one, even if there isn't one. One of things as a football fan I'm always interested in is the way in which football fans will engage in superstition. I have several myself. If I don't listen to the, to the match on the radio, they are more likely to win, being one of my favourites. So in other words, all we're talking about here is the desire for kind of explanation and
and kind of connection. The obliterating void is just too much for us, really, kind of the notion of death and pointlessness and, and having to give point to our own lives. So this puts us in favour of the idea of stories. I mean, in this way, you could say, why do newspapers have what they have in them? How do they decide what is something that you put on the front page of a newspaper? Well, how do they decide what constitutes the variety of things which we would call news? I think there are some kind of relationships to that. But within that, there are also all kinds of different bits of motivation. So the first one is tell myself a story which convinces me and also which is easily attainable. I think that's quite important because quite often real life stories, the stories of how things actually are, are very complicated and they require quite a lot of effort. By and large, not in all ways, by the way, but by and large, conspiracy theories work on pretty simple premises. Now, of course, in the question in something like 9-11, conspiracy theory, the conspiracy theory became so complicated and baroque, it actually ended up, I think, disappearing up its own fundament. Because in the end, it was just too complex, really, to be a satisfying... You know, a satisfying conspiracy theory is COVID doesn't really exist. It is a thing got up by big pharmaceutical companies and agreed about by governments because politicians are given money by pharmaceutical companies, etc. So if you don't like the idea of the restrictions, etc., and you also want something to blame, but you also want to lift yourself out of the anxiety of the sheer arbitrariness, seeming natural arbitrariness of a pandemic, because its explanation lies in evolution itself, <laughs> which is a pretty kind of big thing, then you'll go for a relatively simple version. And that's what anti-lockdown, anti-vaxxers head towards. It isn't real, therefore it's a hoax. Same thing was done on climate change, really, by climate change deniers. It's all got up by politicians who want vested interests, who seek to take control of us by imposing controls as a result of arguing that this climate change exists. Same thing is said about wars. So the American right opposed Franklin Roosevelt's involvement in Europe on the basis, partly on the basis, it was done in order to take greater control of individuals at home. And of course, you can do that under wartime conditions. So the desire for the story that obliterates something like accidents, particularly come the big accident of something like a pandemic, is very substantial. Some of it is just losers' regret. I mean, go back to the football field. And the number of times I've heard serious football fans say, referees are biased against my team. And that's the explanation for why we defeat. So an explanation for defeat, which lies not in the idea that actually you were less good than the other side, or that your ideas were defeated by the other side in the battle for ideas, but then somehow in the old football term, we was robbed, or in the French terms, military terms, nous sommes trahis, or the stab in the back theory into war Germany and so on, they all have this similarity, which is, it's not a deficiency in myself and my arguments and my my side's arguments, etc. It is the conspiracy on the other side. So to take examples of court, I mean, the Trump example stands out a mile. Trump has never lost anything without claiming. In fact, he's not even won anything without claiming it was rigged against him by these sorts of forces. But it was also incredibly seductive for Democrats to want to believe that they had lost because of Russia. Now, Russia did try to intervene, but you know, it's almost certain that that couldn't make the difference between success and failure, that people would argue 
argue about the narrowness of certain votes in certain states, but nevertheless. But you feel the pull of that. It's a very satisfying thing to believe that you were robbed, not by a paucity and a problem in your own position, etc., and preference for another. So there's the loser element. And then there's a final element I just want to mention. There is also the elitist element in it. I know something and understand something that you don't know and that you don't understand. And this is also a kind of locus classicus of Western conspiracy theory, which is the idea that the people who don't get it are sheeple. And you see this word in amongst the anti-vaxxers, etc., who allow themselves to be fooled and gulled by the authorities. But I am a higher kind of a person. I have a higher kind of an intellect or a higher kind of individual morality. I am more rugged. I have a better sense of myself. And I can see the things that you cannot see. And there's a deep satisfaction, it seems, to people talk like that, that I think some of them get from it. So those are some of the kind of things. And of course, some people combine all those things. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross, and my guest, the wonderful erudite David Aronovich. And that is the objective, fact-checked truth. As we enter the second half of this conversation, David and I talk next about QAnon and departures from reality, combating conspiracy theories, the importance of truth, the real agency we have over social media algorithms, and what David is truly optimistic about for the future. Now, I must just say in parentheses that as a fellow Spurs fan, I can totally understand why you're so superstitious. I mean, we're probably all desperately looking under the sofa for reasons and excuses and uh, motivations to get to get the team playing better. So it's a, yeah, it's well, a it's terrible actually, affliction we suffer from. The terrible truth is that none of us quite understand the alchemy of teams. <laughs> but to make us feel slightly better, there is such a direct and constant correlation, not absolute, between footballing success and financial standing that over the medium or longer term, that will tell you at least half of what it is you need to know. Yeah, I think there's huge reversion to the mean in football, despite that it's very roller coaster and volatile in appointments and firings. And yeah. uh, you've been talking and, to Danny Finkelstein again, haven't you? Uh, I, I might have been. Now, you were talking about well, people who sort of present themselves as you know more intelligent than others and on a higher plane. And perhaps you can give some examples here, because when you look at the major proponents behind many of these theories, it's curious that it's more often than not overtly intelligent, sensible people who are behind them. It's perhaps counterintuitive, but why? Is that so? Well, I said it in the book, and nothing I've seen. Really, I mean, I was wondering about it in more in relation to the QAnon set of theories, because I think it may be that social media and its proliferation slightly changed some of the way I would think about this. But in the past, conspiracy theories, particularly elaborate ones, have almost always emanated from well-educated people, the journalistic classes, frankly, and people who claim to kind of see the real way the world works, and they get a kind of bee in their bonnet about it. I was really struck struck by the number of academics in America, although there are, it has to be said, hundreds of thousands of academics in America. So you have to be a bit careful here. And also the fact is in America, you can get 5% of people agreeing to any bloody proposition at all. I mean, seriously, you could put any proposition in a poll and 5% would say they believed it. So again, there's a bit of a warning there. But there was an incredibly strong intellectual movement, this movement for 9-11 truth. I mean, it was, you know, they had academics for 9-11, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds 
hundreds of academics put their names to the idea that George Bush had effectively brought down the Twin Towers himself to give himself an excuse to invade Iraq and take their oil. And the other thing, which was also true about conspiracy theorists for a very long time, is they were all men. And one theory that I had about it was that it was a kind of attitude towards power, which was if you were a chap and you expected to take part in the more in the kind of political and organisational sphere of life, then you'd have more of an orientation to discovering who you thought was really pulling the strings, etc., given that it's quite likely that you probably thought that you should be and was being thwarted from being. And women tended to gravitate more towards health conspiracy theories, where the proposition was that their children were being poisoned and so on. And I don't think it's accidental that more of the anti-vaxxer movements is composed of women than conventional conspiracy theories. But on the other hand, that may just simply reflect that women are becoming more active or have become much more active in all spheres, and therefore you'd expect it there as much as anywhere else. So conspiracy theories are written by educated people, disseminated on the whole by educated people, particularly in the pre-social media age. Now, we come up to the social media age, and I think those bets may be off a little bit, because in the early internet period, there was an incredible amount of the creation of what you might kind of kind of a false intellectualism to conspiracy theories. In other words, you get these very detailed websites with lots and lots of footnotes leading you off to other websites that were laid out in a kind of quasi-academic way, etc. So you could mistake them for something that was intellectually reputable. A lot of effort was put into doing this. But with things like the QAnon theory, they hardly bother. It's almost like a kind of repudiation of any kind of organisation and thinking and so on. And almost anything goes. So I can't help seeing QAnon as being the first conspiracy theory that is also essentially a cult. I'm interested in the boundaries between sort of cultism, superstition, conspiracy theory. There's clearly overlap. There are cults that have conspiracy theories as an important part of what they do, but it's not essentially what they're set up for, if you like, a kind of accidental or byproduct of what they need in order to kind of cement their solidarity in some cases. But in the case of something like QAnon, it's the kind of notion of belonging to it, which I've never quite seen before. I am a Q person. I identify with this Q thing in every way. The emanations of what is supposed to be Q are beyond question. So there isn't even a need to justify them intellectually. Throughout the whole 9-11 thing, although they were crazy theories and complicated theories, my God, the effort they went to to try and convince people about them and the kind of background stuff they put into it was absolutely dramatic. I mean, no sooner had one bit of theory been dispatched, you know, the idea that you couldn't use a mobile phone from a low-flying plane, you'd dispatch that one, then another one would come up. And of course, in the intervening time, all the kind of little conspiracy theories had got the new one out. So you go from that to the Twin Towers brought down by explosions, but not in the way you think. There's a new thing called nanothermite discovered by a Danish chemist in Lund or whatever. (laughs) By the time you've dealt with that one, there's another one. But now with QAnon, they don't have to do that. Q says, this is what, no, this is, you know, because kind of, we, we know, we know this is the case below the pizza house they're holding children. What's the evidence for it? Absolutely nothing. Guy turns up there with a weapon to try and kind of deal with what he sees as as this abuse of children going on in a basement in a pizza joint, a basement that doesn't even exist. There isn't one. And even that doesn't deal with it. And also, 
looking at some of the interviews with people who have fed into the... I mean, there are some kind of conventional sort of, you know, the students and independent journalists, as they call themselves, as, you know, you get a lot of those, particularly around the kind of Syrian theories about how, how Bashar al-Assad is not using chemical weapons, etc. And you get conventional journalists who give credibility to some of those theories. But in this one, what you see is seen to tend to see is a lot of people who are just desperate, really. Going back to the question of religion again, isn't it? Q is the God and your word against mine. Neither of us have evidence enough to prove it one way or the other. I have faith. Um, I, I just know it. I have I, the faith. Yeah, I, have I, faith I know, I I know, know it. it and you can't see it. And there's something particular about QAnon. And there are probably other examples and maybe I'm being naive. It was particularly topical in the last year, but it, it somehow makes me question my whole faith in, in society and in humanity that you have someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress as a proponent of the story. It doesn't really make you stand back and gulp, doesn't it? Well, I mean, yes, it does, but no more than the idea that a significant majority of Republicans by the idea that the election was stolen. To me, it is as big a victory for irrationality and counter-rationality as quite a lot of the things that happened in the run-up to Hitler's taking of power. And actually afterwards, all similar kinds of societies with similar kinds of mentality. It's a departure from an agreement about what reality is that feels irrecoverable. We're segueing a little towards this sort of notion of truth. And I wanted to ask, how important is truth to you, particularly in light of having written a book? The idea that you can and should assiduously attempt to find out the truest thing that you can and then be prepared to alter your perception of it as facts and argument changes, I think is absolutely critical to an enlightened and civilised society. And I feel that terribly strongly. And so when people will say, as they often do, there's no point in arguing with X, there's no point in, you know, everything you kind of say just confirms it. There is a question about the tactics that you might use and the way in which you might put things and if you're kind of simply rude to people, not maybe to the leaders of these things, because maybe actually it's quite important sometimes to point out who and what they are. But I'm aware that in saying that, I'm speaking to what I want to be true. I personally emotionally can't bear the idea of giving up on truth as something that you can move closer towards or if things go badly, you move away from. But do you think truth is an objective matter of fact or is it subjective to our own contexts? Well, I'm not a philosopher and that's going to show through in the answer that I would give to that. I'm a great supporter of what I understand to be the scientific method of testing hypotheses and and retesting and being open to the idea that your ideas develop and truth changes. So when I first read Carlo Rovelli's first little book, you know, kind of physics for idiots, I was blown away by the discovery that space is full of stuff. <laughs> I kind of, you know, sort of really changed my perception of the way things actually were. In other words, we're making discoveries all the time that may significantly change our perceptions as we have gone deeper and deeper into uh, sequencing the genome and into genome-wide associations. We're finding all kinds of possibilities, some of them palatable, some less palatable for why people are the way they are. And I'm very much in favour of going where the knowledge takes us and then dealing with what that is. But nevertheless, there is a kind of degree of, well, I was going to say there is a degree of truth about whether a pill works or not, but of course that kind of rather is undermined by the idea of placebos and the capacity of the mind. But allowing for the fact that most of the time, placebos have a kind of limited capacity to affect 
major conditions and so on, whereas other things have a bigger capacity, then in that case, quite a lot of me is like most of us have to be in order to live an old fashioned empiricist. You test the thing and see what actually happens. And if it happens over and over again, the way in which in that case, that's not a theory that enters the world of fact. Outside of that ideal view, which I support as well, has our relationship nevertheless with the truth changed in the last 20 years as more people have more access to create noise freely and quickly? I have a young colleague called James Marriott who has written a couple of big pieces about how terrible the internet is and it's destroying civilization and so on. And I think he's only just turned 30. So he's never really lived in the pre-internet society. If we take the beginning of the internet society, it's about 1995. So it's what, about 25 years ago. But he's never lived out. But I have. I don't know how old you are, but you're kind of in between us, I think. 42. Um, yeah, yeah, almost precisely in between. No, you're closer to him, actually. No, let's not fool ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, now yeah. I'm thinking about you're significantly closer to him. I think I straddle both eras. I, I can definitely remember life without the internet and phones. Exactly. And so I'm incredibly aware of how powerful the capacity to discover true things on the internet actually is. And yet we always talk about the false things on the internet. It's really striking. I don't know the degree to which we can say that the capacity to communicate in the way we have helped create the vaccines with which we're dealing with the pandemic in the speed we did, but I'm pretty sure that our capacity to communicate via the internet had a significant amount to do with it. In other words, the communication of truths quickly is a very important also part of the internet. So I think we can be over-pessimistic about it, but the fact is also there's this immense proliferation of sources. I mean, immense proliferation actually doesn't do just to the sheer scale of it. I mean, one of the problems we have is a lot of people say about the tech companies, oh, they should act as publishers. This is impossible. It's an impossible proposition. You can't possibly act as a publisher would if what is going up on your platform happens in the billions every day. It's not possible. The only way you can conceivably do it is by doing it through artificial intelligence and a significant algorithm. And those algorithms are going to have problems too. So let's not be kind of starry-eyed about it. If you offer a platform to the whole for everybody in society to say what they want on it, by and large, which is what the kind of original notion almost of the internet was, then in that case, all things are going to kind of get said on it and then becomes incumbent upon the rest of us to do the sifting between all the penumbra and all the damaging rubbish, etc., and the things which are valuable to us. So let me give you an example. I have endlessly, you see people saying, I'm coming off Twitter, it's toxic. Well, my Twitter's not toxic. Then what people forget about their use of the internet is they see what they choose to see. Even if some malign YouTube algorithm offers them a series of possibilities, no one is forcing them to take those possibilities. They don't have to. So for example, in my case, for some reason, YouTube has decided about a month ago, I would be interested in Benny Hill. I'm not interested in Benny Hill. So I didn't go onto the Benny Hill site, etc. It wasn't a very difficult decision. It was a bit like not going into the bookshop and not going to the religious affairs section. I mean, there's almost something a bit conspiracy theory here, David. I mean, that's perhaps a slight exaggeration, but we are always looking for sort of diversionary explanation. Yeah. Now, I mean, Facebook is problematic in some ways, but Facebook is not forcing any of us, nor is well, Twitter, to devote time to no, it. No, no, so. the big problem, it seems to me, was the way in which it subverted transparency, because the other necessary thing, I think, for a bias in favour of what you might call truth is that things are as open as possible, which is why I also have big problems with people 
people who say, oh, the terrible thing about the internet is history continues when it should be expunged, really. I think, well, okay, but history is also kind of valuable. It does actually tell you things, and what you do with it, therefore, is a matter for you. So if you did, age 19, tweet a whole lot of anti-Semitic things, that is interesting. I'm sorry, but it tells you something about the moment, and it tells you something about the kind of situation the person was in. If you subsequently want to say, I disown that now, I don't feel that now, I'm going to believe you. Um, Your problem comes with the other people who decide, I'm not going to believe you. Well, I can see the difficulty there. I can see why you might want to hide it. In other words, what I felt was, if you like a decision to make about social media, we could either decide to let it drive us crazy, or we could decide somehow or other to draw its sting by not overreacting to it. We decided to let it drive us crazy. We just made that decision. Let me take the subject of truth to politics briefly, difficult to resist it. Does it worry you that many of us don't seem to care much what politicians say, lies or otherwise? Because I feel, you know, perhaps Trump is a benchmark, but the sort of sub-question there is, you know, what does it take for Boris and his cabal to be brought to account? Well, one thing would help is not to call him Boris, I'm afraid. Okay. No, no, it's not, it's not an admonition. Well, it's, it's, I'm afraid it's kind of the kind of notion of the sort of charm that gets you a first name when everybody else has a second name only is that, in other words, we are kind of intimate with this guy. We give him a kind of connection with us that we don't give to somebody else may indeed actually at some level be a little bit of the problem. And so I've schooled myself out of that like a medieval monk with a scourge. So I kind of don't do that. I find this one both a tricky one and I sometimes distrust. I mean, it seems to me a writer like Peter Oborn, every 10 years he writes a book about how whoever is prime minister is the most crooked prime minister there's ever been. I think he's on his third now. And so I'm very good for his publishers and I'm sure he absolutely kind of believes it. But I'm not sure he's ever asked to square up the various books against each other. So first thing is we are living in a much more transparent society. We are, which it's much easier to find out whether something is true or not. I'm just reading now, uh, well, I finished reading for review a book about what happened to the Duke of Windsor after the abdication. And one of the things that happened was the desperate attempt, successful quite a long way, by Winston Churchill and others because of embarrassment to the royal family, but not because of any the essential interest of the British people to stop publication in America and elsewhere of various cables which had been exchanged between Edward and people who actually were Nazi agents. We were reminded this morning, this podcast will be going out another time, but one of the particular morning we're recording this, C, the head of MI6, came into the Today programme to do an interview. Well, C was only acknowledged as being actually a person, I think, in the 80s and could only be named very recently and actually for most of my time as a young journalist, MPs weren't allowed to refer to the security services in the chamber as they weren't the royal family, as it happens. So let's be clear, we emerged from a period, particularly in British history, when anything an official knew was regarded as a secret and wasn't to be told or divulged. So we didn't know what people were doing. Now we have much greater transparency about it. So I don't really buy the idea that what you've got is a sort of tsunami of untruthfulness I think our standards actually probably are higher than they were, and I think we should recognise that. But the thing we are incredibly subject to now in Western societies is what you might call shamelessness. Mm -hmm. That's a different matter. It's just the thing. If I am sufficiently brazen, then that constitutes a personality. That gives me a degree of celebrity or confers upon me. It is a kind of narcissistic gold dust, which kind of gets sprinkled on people, which means that if Boris Johnson was was not this kind of, you know, incredibly, supposedly charming, old Etonian with the gift of the gab, etc. I'm pretty sure he would have gone by now. <laughs> so, 
you know, it's those kind of overvalued qualities. I was really struck while I was in Germany on the night of the elections. I was really struck by the fact that, you know, there are very things that people describe as being disappointments in Keir Starmer are the very things that Germans say they value about their possible chancellors. Yeah, different temperaments and character preferences, I suppose. But I want to flip back actually to conspiracy theories and something we touched on earlier, which was the subject of how we combat them, which is interesting to touch. And I think, you know, some theories, by the way, are reasonably niche or benign. So if you're a flat earther, so be it. Probably doesn't have much worrying global impact. But other conspiracy theories are not so benign. And we could go back to the protocols and, you know, there's an argument to say that stretching from the 19th century strongly influenced the Holocaust, but now that they've stretched into the belief system even of Hamas in the Middle East, that seems quite worrying to me. So how does one go about decelerating the propagation of dangerous myths? Well, you write books about it and make sure people keep buying them years after they've been published, if you're lucky. Tony Blair, and this is my first name drop, once said to me, but I'm sure he said to other people as well, that he took a lot of note of Bill Clinton's motto, never stop arguing. And what he meant by that is he didn't mean be a pain, etc., and kind of, you know, every time you have a dinner party, make sure that you're the only voice that gets heard and so on. What he meant was never give up on telling people what you think is happening. By all means, change your argument, but as you discover new things, but never stop. And I think this is a kind of generally a, a good rule for life. There's a big temptation to kind of give up on it and so on. I have had communications with people who have said, not that many, but nevertheless some, and maybe they represent more. I was a bit of a conspiracy theorist. I read your book and I Actually, I was more persuaded by what you said than by them, and I've changed my mind on it. Now, you could very well think, well, they probably would have changed their minds anyway, that kind of person, because they, I don't know. I think it is really important that the contrary, well-detailed argument is put for people to hear after their, as soon as they have encountered conspiracy theories. So I'm really pleased that the BBC, for example, has appointed disinformation reporters who examine disinformation and seek to correct it. I'm very supportive of organisations like Full Fact or Fact Check, which provide online debunking, which you can trust of these things as almost as soon as they possibly can and hear about them so you can get them out there and defray them. There's a lot of people say, well, one of the ways is for governments to become ever more transparent or never to tell lies and so on, and conspiracy theories would go away. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. In fact, the more transparent society is, it can be more susceptible to conspiracy theories because there's more, if you like, conspiracy theories to work with. It's not a trade-off in that kind of a way. And I think people have got to trust your integrity in that argument that you've actually kind of done the work. And that, at the end of the day, is really the bugger of it. Because taking a shed load of anti-vaxxers propaganda, which will include half-baked or kind of half-digested claims that sit inside real scientific papers and alter their context, it's incredibly time-consuming. If you're an actual scientist trying to find a vaccine or get the vaccines out, it's not something you're going to want to do. And yet somebody has to do it. So I give real support to those who put in the hard yards, if you like, of examining these theories as they get put up and making sure that the contrary argument is put out in short order. It's difficult. And of course, if you pay them, then of course, they're part of the conspiracy. But actually, they are already, I mean, the conspiracy theorists. Well, we should conclude the main part of this on an upbeat note. So my final main question is, what are you optimistic about for the future? Well, I'm incredibly optimistic about developments in medical science. There are staggering things going on. I mean, 
honestly do think that other things being equal, in 50 years' time, many of the major conditions which cause us such grief now will largely be things of the public. You know, at the moment, medicine, we don't realise how what a blunt instrument medicine is quite often. You know, we give somebody chemotherapy, we don't have any idea of their genomic response to that particular chemotherapy. We treat it all as if it's one size. And I think the same is true in education, really, and in a whole lot of other situations where we are forced into the idea of cohorts. You are a cohort and you just get this because that in general works. But actually, specifically for you, it might be completely counterindicated. We're going to discover that. Take, for example, the application of artificial intelligence to diagnostics in the field of optometry. An AI can process hundreds of retinal scans in a fraction of the time, but with as much accuracy as the best human optometrist can. Well, think about that applied to a more kind of general level. So I'm very optimistic about what some of those advances could be. And if we were to apply the same kind of general proposition, the possibility of it, to other areas of kind of human failing and disaster, we have a big tendency to turn all these things into dystopias. AI it's a dystopia. Nanoparticles, they're a dystopia, etc. And all those things are possible, but much more likely is that they will give us the capacity to do things and solve problems in a much quicker time than we were able to do them before. So those are the kind of hopes I see. But of course, those things have to happen within well-governed and moral societies. In other words, is there a significant difference or might there be a significant difference between an advance in Xi's China and an advance coming out of a series of laboratories in Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol, Imperial, and so on. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the interplay between biology, medicine, technology, one of the next great frontiers. And of course, it also produces plenty of side effect challenges, which is another debate. Shall we do some quick fire? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a rhetorical question in a way. Okay. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, I hate these questions. I can't oh, think. Of, no, no, no. I really just want to be so <laughs> I can't think of these things quickly. All I can say is loads of people have done really kind things for me over my life. And I'm now in my 60s. So <laughs> I'm really sorry, Daniel. This is, I'm going to be a complete failure on this one. That's fine. You've got a few others to make it back. You might not like this one either, actually, on reflection. What's your most powerful memory? My most powerful memory is of the psychotic hallucinations I had in hospital 10 years ago when they saved me in ICU when I was about to peg it. And those are, because of the nature of those hallucinations, they are completely indelible and they don't change. I'm sorry about this, not very optimistic, but... What had happened to you, if I may ask? Routine operation had gone wrong, nicked the bowel, sepsis, you know, double by basal pneumonia, intubation, things we've become more familiar with, actually, in the last couple of yeah. years. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Problem is that writers write all everything, so everybody knows everything interesting about me. Actually, there can't be anything interesting about me that I haven't already said that I am willing to talk about. Except, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Which means there's nothing left for you. There's nothing left. Okay. No, I don't think so. Uh, you'll definitely like this one. Which book do you gift most regularly? I like J.G. Farrell. So up until recently, certainly, I tend to give people and recommend either Troubles or The Siege of Krishnapur. Probably The Siege of Krishnapur is now going to be discovered to be inappropriate. But I love J.G. Farrell's writing. I also like Paul Scott's Raj Quartet, which I don't think is ever going to be inappropriate. I like Paul Scott as well. Did Siege of Krishnapur won the Booker Prize, if I'm not mistaken? It did. Yeah, it did. Yeah. What's your Desert Island music? 
you mean one thing? You don't have to list eight tracks. Uh, you know, it could be a band, a genre, a song. I think probably it would be the record of the 1954 Radio 3 performance or third programme performance of Under Milkwood, which I used to have. We used to have on a record when I was a kid. Richard Burton as the narrator. And it's much longer than a track. And eventually right. I'd know every word. That's a lovely one. And finally, winding down away from work, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. Well, firstly, I hate the word hobby. <laughs> Well, no, because firstly, only men have hobbies. And second, it's always a kind of demeaning way of saying interest, isn't it? Fairly late, I've come to really enjoy art of all kinds. So going to galleries when no one else is there, like getting into the Bruegel room at the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna and having those six amazing Bruegels all to yourself so you can study them. That's my idea of what I would do a lot of if I had more time. Well, I think maybe there's a challenge to me, despite actually you gave some excellent answers there that I need to re-examine my quickfire round. So that's some homework for no, me. No, no, no. Uh, some people are good at it and some people aren't. No, I really should. I'm teasing. I'm, te- I'm teasing. It, it's frivolous fun at the end anyway. But with that, David, let me thank you enormously, not just for your time, but moreover for sharing so much of yourself with me and for inviting us into the world of conspiracies, which I think many of us are aware of at surface level, but don't truly understand the inner workings of. Well, I think now we, we know a lot more. And if that's one goal of talking a load of BS, then I'm hugely grateful to you, David. Yeah, Thank now, you very much. Now you know the secret force that is behind all the conspiracy theories. Exactly. Thanks so much, David. Well, what a rich and thought-provoking start to a load of BS 2022. I spent time over the holiday trying to distill what the essence of these conversations are about. So I really hope that this one is a good start in explaining why we do the things that we do or as David put it eloquently regarding the attractiveness of conspiracy theories, it's our desire for explanatory narratives in a world of uncertainty. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but this makes sense to me. Before I close, can I ask you a small favour? Go to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, subscribe, follow me, and leave me a five-star review. It does me the world of good in this cold winter weather. And if you haven't signed up yet for all my writings on Monday BS and the pod archives, Now's the time to do that at aloadofbs.substack.com. Next week, I'm talking to experimental psychologist and leading scholar in evolution and human behaviour, Dr. Jesse Berry, about fetishes, afterlife and other taboos. Keep well, until next time.